Welcome to this um, video that is to do with State of the Nation Freedom of Religion or Belief in the United Kingdom. This is sponsored by Freedom Declared Foundation. Freedom Declared is a, a charity within the United Kingdom that aims to gather first-hand evidence to understand people's perception of freedom of religion or belief in the United Kingdom. We aim to understand what people believe freedom or, of religion or belief means and how this compares to the international obligations the UK has signed up to. We also aim to understand if people believe the United Kingdom is living up to the obligations it signed up to, and if not, where is it falling short? For more information, please feel free to follow us on social media at Freedom Declared. We're very pleased to be joined today by Andrew Copston. Andrew Copston has been Chief Executive of Humanists UK since 2009 and elected President of Humanists International since 2015. He is a former director of the Religious Education Council of England and Wales, the Values Education Council, and the National Council for Faiths and Beliefs in Further Education. His books include the Sunday Times bestseller, The Little Book of Humanism, and The Little Book of Humanist Weddings, written with Alice Roberts. Secularism, A Very Short Introduction, and The Wiley Blackwell Handbook of Humanism with A.C. Grayling. Thank you so much for joining with us today, Andrew. It's a pleasure. So we're just going to start with with a question, which is how do you understand the term and the responsibility with regards to freedom of religion and belief? Well, I think most humanists like to cast it in the in the language of the original human right in many ways and think about the freedom of thought, the freedom of thought, conscience and religion or belief. And it really is just for me, the foundational freedom. The The idea is that every person, every human being should be free to make up their own mind. Uh, and free to have the resources they need to make up their own mind. There should be free exchange of ideas, free expression of ideas, free interchange of ideas, and that no public body, no government, no state, um, no agency should ever try and disrupt that freedom by re restricting access to information, by coercing you, by disadvantaging you, or by advantaging you um, with certain uh, beliefs, um, religions, or ideas. And so that idea, which is really one about human development and human potential um, and everyone having the um, opportunity uh, to develop their own individuality um, as, a, as a unique person is, is, is what I, I think freedom of religion and belief is all about. Fantastic. That links really well with Article 18 of the UN Declaration as well, doesn't it? So, so you kind of encapsulated that. Yes, so I guess it does. I don't think that's an accident. You know, I think that they, I think that the two, um, you know, there's a lot of ideas in, in Article 18 and in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that are, um, you know, shared ideas that are shared between different religious and non-religious traditions all around the world. And that means there are a lot of ideas in it that are very humanist in the very shared value sense of humanistic um, beliefs. And so I think that, you know, um, it's not a coincidence. I mean, it's interesting for me because if I think about my lifetime, and I'm, I'm getting on a little bit. No, no. Certainly, certainly for the first period of my life, probably for the first 20 or 30 years, whenever freedom of religion was spoken about, it was, free, it was spoken about as freedom of religion rather or than... religious freedom. Or religious freedom mm. rather than freedom of religion or belief. So what do you think has changed within society or has it changed within society to, in, to include those with non-religious worldviews? And, and It's yeah. a very interesting question because I think my experience of, of working in the field of, of freedom, religion or belief for the last sort of 16 or 17 years, um, internationally and nationally, and those two things are sometimes quite different, um, has been that there have for a long time, for many decades, perhaps been almost two um, schools, 
um, within the wider uh, Article 18 space. One has been the religious freedom school, very influenced quite often by United States type thinking um, about, you know, religious liberty and, 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 that, and that tradition within, within their own constitution and culture. And that's about you know, making sure that you can practice your religion, you know, the state can't stop you and um, doing your, your religious thing, you know, whatever you want to do um, within some limits. But the limits aren't there in the constitution of the US, the limits have developed since, right? So there's a religious freedom tradition. And then there is a sort of freedom of thought and conscience tradition, which, like I alluded to a moment ago, is it stands more in the sort of um, European Enlightenment type, um, humanistic, um, intellectually free, freedom of debate, freedom of expression um, uh, type tradition. And I think those two very much expressed in human rights terms in the in the modern world. And I think those two traditions have moved sort of closer together uh, in the last couple of decades um, as lots of factors behind that. I think I think religious groups and churches have moved closer to the human rights, freedom of belief, freedom of thought framework, because they think it offers um, a good way to achieve um, uh, the protections that they're looking for, the legal protections they're looking for, and also a good language on the international stage to be able to argue for um, what in their hearts is religious freedom, but you know, it can be expressed in terms of um, freedom of religious belief. And I think that for those um, who uh, are part maybe of the more not abstract, but the more sort of um, ideological tradition of freedom of thought um, have embraced that idea that we could be talking about freedom of religion or belief, where belief includes non-religious beliefs such as um, anyone might have, have embraced that because the concept of freedom of religion or belief makes real, concretizes the sort of problems that are faced in the world today. Freedom of thought and conscience can seem very abstract, but when you start talking about freedom of religion or belief, and the people who have beliefs and their ability to express their beliefs and not be restricted in expressing, expressing their beliefs, it becomes suddenly more real and sort of more vivid. So I think that, that that's what's happened um, uh, in general terms in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. I don't think it's the case that non-religious beliefs have come into religious freedom. I think it's the two schools have, have, have met really um, and sort of coalesced. Yeah, that's interesting from my perspective, because I think it's people like you, because um, obviously I work within religious education, it's people like you who have helped me understand that it is far more than religious freedom, that it has to include, and, and so bringing those two, so I perhaps was on one side of, not one side of the fence, but on concerned with religion, Yes, you were not necessarily solely concerned with belief and or freedom of thought, but kind of recognizing that you were going through the same issues that perhaps lots of religious people are going through and enables us to come together. So, yeah. so that's been really interesting for me as a religious educator to kind of see that it isn't just about religious freedom, that it's about religion and belief and worldviews and all of those things. Mm. But that leads us on to, I guess, a question is how well in the UK generally are we doing with regards to freedom of religion and belief from your perspective? Well, I like I, I like to resist the the temptation that lots of people have to sort of diss their own country more than others because <laughs> because they're more familiar with it, so they see yeah. its faults more closely. You know, um, it's it it is it is obviously the case that in the whatever it is now is it 190 about that many sort of states in the world that the UK is obviously near the top end of mm -hmm. of, of, of states in the world today, um, maybe states in the world ever um, that respect and promote freedom of uh, religion or belief. Um, but I would say that it's it's at the bottom end of the first division okay. uh, in terms of 
uh, its practices. Um, and sometimes that can feel very strange to us, actually, when we think when you live in a country, when you're enculturated into it, and you think you see its its ways as as uh, as just being how things are. You know, you don't really realize sometimes how uh, extreme an outlier you can be. We are, for example, the only sovereign state in the world um, to mandate daily Christian worship in our state schools. Mm. You know, th that's everyone would in, in in England, certainly, but in most parts of the UK, we just think it was probably normal, probably in schools everywhere. They have prayers and hymns in the morning and children are expected to. Not the case, you know, not the case at all. We're the only sovereign state to require it. Um, we're the only state apart from Iran to have members of the state church uh, sitting in Parliament as a right, you know, um, uh, a very clear um, uh, example of the state advantaging people with a particular uh, religion or belief. Um, we're one of only four countries in the OECD to allow state schools to select pupils on religious grounds, you know, just to, to choose pupils for state schools um, based on uh, their parents' religion. I think the others are who are the others? Estonia, Ireland, Israel. I think you know, right. it's not that's not allowed in any other country. You know, freedom of religion or belief in every other um, democracy, developed economy, and democracy in the world would completely ban that practice, which we, you know, uh, accept as almost normal. Uh, parents accept they're going to have to maybe go to church to get their child into this school or that school or whatever, and it's just a, it's a it's an egregious uh, practice. So there's all sorts of ways in which um, the UK. Um, which is often the way that human rights violations happen in the UK, sort of quietly by convention, uh, things, uh, you know, human rights are violated, but with a, with a soft language of, um, you know, parental choice in the case of the human rights violations in, around school admissions or, you know, history. Christian culture and history in the case of mandatory prayer in, in state schools um, and so on and so forth. So I think there are, there are many ways in which uh, UK law and practice violates international standards. And these are, of course, pointed out uh, by the UN rapporteurs quite, quite often. Um, I've mentioned there are only ones that affect, um, perhaps unduly affect non-religious people, but of course there are many that affect uh, religious people too, or people of the wrong religion, you know, if you... Yes, because, I mean, I'm listening to those, and I'm religious, but um, wrong religious, I guess, would be the phrase, so so, so some of those would affect me, but but I look at those as well, and, and we have the collective worship since 1944, I think. Yes, very controversial when it was introduced, much more controversial in 1944 than it is today, probably, actually. And then faith schools, 1860, somewhere around there, with the... With the it's yeah, difficult to be sure. I mean, probably again, 1944 in the current system, although probably 1988 properly in the current system, because before for in 1944, when a lot of church schools were brought into the state system, they were only given these privileges of selection and so on and, and special teaching because they paid 50% of the running costs. And yeah. between 1944 and now, of course, that's completely gone. So it, the, it became 40%, then 30%, then 20%. And now, of course, all of the running costs of religious state schools, you know, faith, so-called faith schools are met by the state. So there's a sort of, the, the, the state's um, upheld its end of the bargain, as it were, but the, the, the churches haven't. But yes, let's say, let's say 1944 is probably better. But if they're historical, how how does that change? Because as you say, they've mm. just become all of those three things are the accepted fabric of society. There, mm. there have been calls in the past for 
um, a reform of the House of Lords, but maybe it's just what I listen to, but I haven't really heard that for the last 15, 20 years in mainstream media. What, what in 2011, um, removing bishops from the House of Lords was the most popular um, request in public consultation on constitutional reform that was held by the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg at the time, you know, when, the, when it looked like the Lib Dems in the coalition at the time at the UK level might manage some constitutional reform, which of course they didn't in the end. Um, but when it was possible that they might, um, there was a public consultation and I was very surprised, but removing bishops from the House of Lords was the most frequently um, uh, requested constitutional change to the government consultation at the time. So there is, I think, an under, you know, below the surface, I think there is quite a, um, a feeling about this. And of course, public opinion polling on, on worshipping schools, on um, faith-based RE and on school admissions does always show a large majority of the public in favour of reform. But, yeah. you know, it's not their top issue. Yeah. It's not their, their strongest issue. And that's that's how a lot of change doesn't happen, of course, in liberal democracies, is that a lot of people care about it, but they don't carry it into their top five issues. And so it doesn't become something that politicians focus on. So that's really interesting. So we've kind of talked about the general things that are within society, but how do they affect or affect the individual, I don't mm. know, humanist or mm. or whoever it might, non-religious person or whoever that might be? How do these things and I know it, it will seem obvious, but how do these things sure. disadvantage the individual, I guess? Well, a parent who can't get their child into their local state school that their taxes are paying for because it's run by a, a religious group um, and it prefers and gives legal priority to the children of um, a particular religion is obviously disadvantaged. And of course, that's one of the um, one of the situations that uh, Humanist UK, because we give legal and other advice to parents and to teachers and it's one of the things that we do in, in, in our work you know um, that's something that comes up all year round I mean it rises to a peak in the years in the part of the year when children are when parents are choosing schools but yeah. it, all year round it's a it's it's, it's a problem um, and that so that's a massive disadvantage um, in all sorts of ways an equal disadvantage actually is the flip side of the coin which we also get a lot of casework on is parents who have no choice other than to send their child to a religious school because it's the only right. school in the area right so huge number of um, primary schools especially in rural England are Church of England schools and although they vary in their religiosity some of them are at the very religious end of mm. things um, and you know the sort of curriculum that is in what of course is called the curriculum subject of RE in those schools, but it's quite different from the curriculum subject of RE that you find in community schools very often. But, you know, the sort of worksheets that come home um, about, uh, you know, taking Christian beliefs to be true, presuming Christian beliefs to be true, um, and that that's what's being taught at school, of course, is very difficult uh, for parents. Very hard for a, a parent, um, you know, a Jewish parent or a Muslim parent or a humanist parent to have to have that difficult conversation with their child where they explain why they should believe their teacher or when they're talking about history, but why when the teacher's talking about Jesus, that's not actually what we believe at home or whatever, um, mm. you know, it is. And so that's, um, that's of course, disadvantage. Uh, the same in worship, naturally. I mean, we, we supported a legal case just recently where parents were saying, you know, it wasn't uh, right for their child because the parents um well the child actually in that case um 
didn't want to participate in Christian religious practices, um, which were going on assembly, um, why it wasn't right for their child because they didn't want to participate in those practices to be thereby effectively excluded from a large part of the common life of the school, you know, the assembly mm. that was um, taking place, which was uh, about community building and shared values in addition to the religious practices that, that were going on. Um, and so that's, that's a clear, that's a clear uh, disadvantage. In terms of um, the curriculum, again, you know, any any curriculum that indicates to a child that a particular way of looking at things is 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 true when it comes to matters of religion is an obvious violation of um, of freedom of religion or belief, um, because although it may be lightly coercive, it's nonetheless coercive. It is, you know, giving an official seal of approval to a particular religion or belief. Um, even if it allows contestation of that truth within the classroom, let's say, it still gives a preferred status to it. Um, and of course, that's um, a structural uh, disadvantage for people who don't share that uh, that belief. Um, so all, in all that, I mean, we're, that we're sticking with the same three issues all the way through. Of course, yeah. there are many, many, many other issues that we could talk about as well. But that's just a few of the of the real world disadvantages. I mean, it's interesting because in my day job, obviously, I, I train teachers and, and mm. help teachers become RE teachers. And one of the things that I say is we need to be neutral. So when we teach about Christianity, Christians do this, Muslims do this, Hindus do this. It's never we do this, they do this. Yeah, that's so important. It's about the positive neutrality. But almost when my, when my students go into a faith school, that kind of goes out the window. And it mm. is we do this and, and mm. they do that. So it's mm. interesting. And that's legal, you know, I mean, that's and that's the strange thing, I think, is a lot of people don't realise that as well. I think there's an, a lot of people who don't realise that, that the, the law is different in, in those different types of state schools, because they're all state schools, you know. Um, yeah, the we, the power of the of the of the in group and the out group uh, in, in in these schools, you know, is, is 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 remarkably strong. And it's the sort of thing that when you focus on it through the frame or the lens of freedom of religion or belief, you, you can bring into focus how wrong it is, yeah. um, which is not immediately apparent. So we, we've talked about kind of three issues, but I know that one issue that Humanist UK campaigned an awful lot on, and I don't think people are aware this is the case, is is the wedding ceremony in England. I'm not sure. I think it's fine in Scotland, isn't it? In Scotland and Northern Ireland, wedding humanist weddings are recognised as legal marriages. That's right. So do you want to explain that issue slightly for us? And yeah, well, um, I mean, it's a complicated uh, issue, in fact, but the so in in most parts of the UK, most jurisdictions of the UK and the UK is made up of different legal systems, as, as probably everyone who's watching this is aware. Um, the legal system in Northern Ireland is different from the one in Scotland, which is different from the one in England and Wales and so on and so forth. Um, the different types of marriage are, are recognised, broadly speaking, there are there are three types of marriage that are recognized in, in in different parts of the uk so you recognize religious marriages where you can be married um by the responsible officer of your religion whatever they might be minister mm -hmm. imam rabbi whatever it might be um in the in a religious ceremony um and that's recognized as the legal marriage so there's religious marriages there's civil marriages which is where a state registrar um can will um perform a ceremony it can be very brief but or sometimes it's much longer um it's still prescribed by the state but there's some choice between different uh, options a state registrar will marry you um and it's a, a legal marriage conducted either in a registrar office or in a registered place um it, 
it depends that's slightly different around the uk different places are recognized around mm -hmm. the uk in different ways and then the third type of marriage that um appears in 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 in, in different laws within the uk is humanist marriage and that is where um a celebrant humanist celebrant from a humanist organization can legally marry you and what makes it different from the civic uh, the civil uh, marriage is that the ceremony reflects humanist uh, beliefs and values um, and is much more because of the focus that humanism has on individuals, their unique lives, their, the unique nature of their relationships and so on, um, is much more focused on the, the, the individuals involved, their personal beliefs, their personal values, their personal story. Um, and the celebrant um, is shares the values of the couple, of course. Um, mm -hmm. which, you know, civil registrars don't, you know, if I go to the register office to be married, I might be married by a Muslim or a Christian or Jew or, or an atheist. I actually wouldn't care who married me if I was having just a civil registrar marriage, and many people don't, and that's fine. But the point is that some people do, and just as religious people can choose the, their officer of their religion to do the marriage that is important to them, expresses their values. Um, so many couples choose the humanist celebrant because a humanist is what they are, even though they might not identify themselves as a humanist, which of course is the weird thing about non-religious beliefs versus religions, is almost everyone with religious beliefs identifies themselves by the name of the religion belief they have. But most people with humanist beliefs and values um, don't call themselves humanists. They just call themselves, you know, what I, what, that's what I think, or, you know, um, they don't <laughs> identify themselves as anything, which is an uh, interesting difference between religions and, and non-religious worldviews quite often. So in Northern Ireland and in Scotland, humanist weddings are legally recognized in england and wales they're not and the reason why not is largely government inertia apathy and sort of uh you know general can't be botheredness uh, at some times in the last seven years there's been a little bit of anti-humanist prejudice i think in the in the failure to recognize humanist marriages but mostly it's been uh, you know lack of positive commitment inertia rather than um, actual opposition. Humanist marriages were created as a possible category of marriage in the law in England and Wales in 2013 because Parliament, there was a majority in Parliament to recognise humanist marriage and the government didn't want Parliament to defeat the government on a vote on this in, 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 in Parliament at a bill that's going through at the time. So the government made a concession, which is that they created the category of non-religious belief marriages to include humanists in marriage law in England and Wales. So there is legally a category uh, for humanist marriage, but the government's compromise was that although they would create that category, they would give the government the power of actually activating uh, the legal uh, right at a later date. And so our technical position, this is getting very technical, is that um, the humanist marriages exist in England and Wales, but they've not yet been authorised by the government to start happening. And the government can, has the power to start them happening by order. So there's an order-making power in, 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 in the marriage law of England and Wales that allows the government to lay an order to you know, give legal recognition to humanist marriages, but it just hasn't done it. So why not? Why haven't they done it? I mean... Right at the beginning, there was a bit of opposition from Church of England. Um, uh, I don't really know why, but in any case, that opposition has now been dropped. And, and most most parts of the Church of England, the Church of England is a complicated organisation, so you can't say the Church of England, but most parts of it, some parts of the Church of England are still against legal, legal human marriage. Other parts of it are now saying, well, it's fair enough. You know, if we think that Christians should be allowed to get married in a Christian ceremony, why shouldn't humanists be allowed to get married in a human ceremony? And that's the right thing. That's good that, that many, many parts of the church people are thinking that now. That's just and fair. And um, 
I think I, I, I gen, 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 generally, um, it, it is quite difficult to know why it hasn't happened. There has been bad luck, you know, as the order was coming through, the coalition government ended, um, then there was the Brexit referendum and those general elections. There was always something big happening that meant they couldn't look at it. Um, they, the government kicked, it, kicked the whole issue into the long grass by saying that instead of doing it, they wanted um, to have a review of all of marriage law in England and Wales, which at the time when that review was first committed to was was absolutely a way of just kicking the whole issue into the long grass. Um, but because it had then that review had then begun, that the existence of that review, which is still ongoing, gave a new sort of more legitimate pretext to waiting to see what that review would do before looking at humanists. So we've just been you know, dragged along on a piece of string really for the last, um, how long is it now? It's almost 10 years. I mean, it'll be 10 years next year. Um, but this inertia had, by inertia. had implications for COVID, didn't it, as well? Because because when, so I remember, because my That's daughter right. was married, they allowed weddings of, a, of, of 30 and that was great. But for humanists, that wasn't allowed at first, was it? No, that's right. I mean, you're exactly right. This disparity of treatment um, between uh, humanists and religious people uh, in marriage law is a FOB violation. And indeed, the High Court um, has, a, a judge in the High Court has said this, you know, that this is that this is the case. Um, freedom of religion and belief and, and the principle of non-discrimination means that the current situation where humanists are treated differently from religious people in, in, in marriage law is unsustainable. The court fell fought shy of actually forcing the government to do anything about it. They said the government should be given more time to deal with it because of the review of marriage law. But you're right that in, in when the COVID regulations were being made in particular, um, the disparity between humanists in marriage law and religious people had a real uh, significance because the COVID law, um, as we know, for the first time in English history, wasn't it that we were we could only do what we were told we could do, mm. um, and and so of course they, they said you could get married if certain conditions um, applied, um, and they didn't include um, non legally recognised weddings. So religious people were able to continue having their weddings, albeit with smaller numbers, as we all remember, which is uh, a shame for many people. Um, but humanist weddings were effectively banned. And so you're right, the government eventually changed the rules um, after a threat of legal action, actually. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, fair credit to them. They did change the, we didn't have to go to court. They did change the rule. But it was a good example of how an underlying structural disparity between um, the treatment of religious people and the treatment of people with non-religious beliefs gave rise to, you know, a very real injustice very suddenly. Mm. Um, when you know an emergency happened and the underlying infrastructure of our law in relation to freedom of religion belief wasn't fit for purpose. That's really interesting. So was that a result? I mean, because I assume they didn't do it purposely. I think I know we're going to mistreat the mm. humanists. No. So, so, so I guess one of the things that's come out of the other interviews that we've done is a lack of literacy with regards to religion and non-religion. So, so, so government and and other agencies kind of know. I don't know the Church of England and, and the established churches essentially, but anything beyond that narrow norm, and I'll use the word norm even though that's not right, um, 
is yeah. kind of not ignored but it isn't known about it doesn't so, feature in their thinking yes. yeah i think that's i think that's i think you're exactly right actually there's the church of england there's the catholic church um there's you know the chief rabbi um who you know often the government expects to cover all of british jury it seems which, which is obviously not the case um and you know there might be some free churches that they uh, consult from time to time but i think you're right largely um there's there's there is no um wider religious and non-religious worldviews uh, knowledge literacy expertise um in policy or in sociological terms uh in in government i think that is definitely true and it leads to um i suppose uh thoughtlessness yeah so what can the government do then do you think or and or, or the wider machinations of government or, or... well i think that they they there are uh, you know i'm a secularist right so i i think that government should be um you know hands off religion and belief as much as it as much as it can be i think that religious and and humanist organizations you know should be separate from the states and the state should be separate from them and there shouldn't be any undue domination of one set of those institutions by the other um you know i think the english constitution is a disaster in relation to uh to this 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 principle um and so I think that most of government um, should simply treat religion and belief groups as they would any other civil society, you know, self-organized groups in, in, in civil society. Um, that's not our situation no. uh, in practice. And, and so there is a case for increasing um, the policy um, and social knowledge of, 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 of particularly civil servants, of course, um, who are working on these things. I think that a national commission that actually looked at the uh, interplay, um, you know, a fixed term couple of years commission that looked at the interplay of religion and belief with law and policy in, 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 the, in, in England and Wales at least, would be a very good idea um, to try and bring that external expertise into informed government. There was a, a commission on religion and belief in British public life, which I was a commissioner on, but it was, although the government was interested in it, it wasn't an official government commission, it was set up by the Wolf Institute and chaired by um, Baroness Butler Sloss, former judge, uh, which is very interesting and it included people of a wide range of different expertises in policy terms and of different religions and beliefs. Um, and those recommendations I think were very good and if they'd been up, taken up by the government that would have been quite good, but in the absence of so anyway, my, my original point, in the absence of internal policy expertise within government, perhaps some sort of, you know, external um, expertise got through a commission or advisory groups or, or, or whatever. Um, but even if there were, you know, Britain were to become a secular state tomorrow, which of course not going to happen, then there would still be areas of policy where religion belief will always feature, you know, where the, where the state will never uh, be able to entirely um, uh, remain completely distant from from important concepts of religion belief like education for example no serious mm. person i don't think no serious person in education in england or any part of the uk ever thinks that we would go down the american or the french style um school curriculum with no references to religion time you know we, most people and all serious people i think believe that the school curriculum should address questions of religious and non-religious mm. beliefs you know for, for, for good citizenship reasons because they're part of the human uh, culture and heritage um, because they can be key to personal development in all sorts of ways for young people you know that's the consensus I would say so in education there'll always be um, the need to be aware of um, both religious and non-religious beliefs and freedom of 
religion or belief. Uh, the education system curriculum in this country does not in any way correspond to uh, freedom of religion belief principles, uh, you know, at all. So there'll be that need. And there'll also be, of course, uh, a in, in a state which takes such an interest in, in, in social life as the British state does, um, there'll always be a role for experts in religion and belief in social policy um, as well. Um, so I think in those areas, government's just got to retain and train expertise, bring people yeah. in or, or, or contact them from outside. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you. So one, one final just thing. We and you mentioned before that that kind of in terms of freedom of religion and belief, we're kind of first division, maybe towards the bottom of that, um, or top of the right. second division. Actually, I've moderated my views. <laughs> the first division is rather small globally in this terms, of course. Um, so, so I guess, how do we do as a society? How does how does the UK do at promoting religion and the freedom of religion and belief around the world, where there are places with blasphemy laws still, where yes. you can be um, locked up for being a humanist? Yes, that's right. Um, I think that the, I mean, there are a couple of dozen countries where to, to even be a humanist is illegal. You know, you cannot on your identity papers, as far as the state is concerned, be a humanist. That's not possible. So, um, uh, and there are widespread violations against people of all different religions and beliefs globally. You know, it's a, it's mm -hmm. a, it's a, a key human rights issue um, for everyone. Well, the British state, I mean, you know, the UK government abroad, um, has often talked quite a good game on uh, freedom of religion or belief, and I think that's to be welcomed. And I also know that um, they're not just talk; you know, they're not all talk. They, they, they there have been some great initiatives um, from in the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office on 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 freedom of religion or belief. But I don't think it's prioritised in in the way that it should be, and I don't think that. Um, the UK is hard enough on the violators of, of this of this particular freedom. You know, I mean, thinking recently, for example, in Kano State in Nigeria, the president of the Humanist Association of Nigeria has been in prison now for over two years and um, arrested without trial, detained without trial on a trumped up blasphemy charge. Um, and the UK government has made very supportive noises um, to some extent, and I believe has has, has spoken you know, privately also to, to, to officials, um, but they've also just launched a new economic partnership in Cano State, and you know talked up the, the wonderfulness of Cano State and, and how you know they'll drive opportunity and this will be wonderful for for human rights as well, and that's those you know those two things just aren't compatible, and and I think that the UK needs to do to, to do better at that. We also, frankly, look like a hypocrite quite often. Um, right. I mean, it's very difficult for the government of the UK to say, to, for example, to the government of China, um, the state shouldn't be choosing bishops and appointing bishops in, in churches because you'd have freedom of religion or belief when the UK state appoints bishops. And of course, I know and you know that the two situations are far from analogous. You know, the, the process by which bishops are appointed in the Church of England and the process why, whereby religious leaders are, um, you know, put into position uh, by the government of China um, are not really comparable, apart from in the principle, yeah. where it's quite legitimate for, 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 for China to say, who are you to talk? Uh, just as it was you know, legitimate until recently for um, states where there are blasphemy laws to say back to the UK, well, you've got a blasphemy law. You know? Your law mm -hmm. protects Christianity. 
um, in, in England, the blasphemy law protected even more narrowly Anglicanism, you know, only the Anglican God was protected from blasphemy. And, um, and so, you know, why shouldn't we have a blasphemy law? You're a Christian country, we're a Muslim country. Oof. So do um, you think that we need to improve our domestic freedom of religion? So I think we do. That's exactly yeah. where I'm going with this. That's right. I think that the I think that the UK should do two things. Firstly, it should um, follow up its rhetoric abroad with action abroad and not um, be complicit with human rights violations around freedom of religion or belief by its inaction or its apparent hypocrisy with trade deals with economic actions and so on and the second thing i think the uk should do is clean up its clean up its own house and that would be by i don't know i think there should be a, a thoroughgoing review of, of of uk law and policy in relation to freedom of religion or belief um to check that it is compatible with um article 18 and address those areas where it isn't i mean the osce which of course is a very uh, important international body um and has done a lot of work on on freedom of religion or belief uh produced very good guidelines for how states could review their legislation pertaining to religion or belief and uh, some even better guidelines in relation to how states could review their law and education as it as it pertains to religion or belief as far as i can tell the uk in spite of being um a key proponent of that whole exercise by the osc and some really top quality british experts sitting on the um on the on the panels that produced those documents I, the uk has never once asked itself you know what what should we do about this how could we revise our laws mm. pertaining to freedom of religion or belief never we need to stop resting on our laurels then and kind of be honest with ourselves as we move forward especially when our laurels aren't that fresh <laughs> <laughs> and maybe yeah are a bit spiky yeah. well, thank, go on. thank you so much for your time though andrew it's been really good are there any final comments you want to make on any of the areas that we've discussed no not at all it's been a very interesting discussion and i think the work of uh, freedom declared foundation is very important thank you very much well thank you so much for your time um, if I just remind listeners that if you uh, would like to follow us on social media, we are at Freedom Declared, and there are a whole number of videos that we are working through as well. So thank you for your time, Andrew, and thank you everybody for listening.